on air takes you beyond legal. This podcast is for general guidelines only, and the contents do not constitute as legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Budijaya On Air. First of all, let me introduce myself. My name is Natanya and I will be your host for today. In today's episode, we have three very special speakers with us today. First, let me introduce our very own Miss Rizky Bangondestari. Hi Rizky, how are you? Hi, hi Natanya. I'm good, I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So, Rizky is a senior associate here at Budija International Lawyers, and she is practicing in the area of general corporate, foreign direct investment, M&A, and also investment. And next, we have two very special guests, all the way from down under, from our good affiliate, Andy & Co. We have their principal, Mr. Natich Pal, and their solicitor, Ms. Alana Hoyek. Hi, Natich and Alana. Welcome to Budija On Air. Hi there. How are you going? having us. Hi, thank you for taking your time to speak with us. We are so excited to have you here for this discussion today. So in this episode, the speakers will be discussing sort of like an introduction to foreign investment in Indonesia and Australia. Over the last decade, Indonesia and Australia have continuously endeavored to expand their cooperation with each other, including their economic relationship. In 2019, Australia and Indonesia's two-way goods and services trade was worth $17.7 billion. As two neighboring countries, Indonesia and Australia have all the potential to be each other's allies in terms of economic partnership. But before we dive more into that, perhaps the speakers could first share a little bit about the origins of law and constitu- constitutional structure of each country. Uh, maybe Ms. Rizky could start first on this. Okay, thank you, Nathania. So I think for Indonesia, the origins of Indonesian law adopts the civil law system originating from continental Europe that was brought to Indonesia during the Dutch colonization. So we adopt, as we uh, as we were colonized by Dutch, we adopt uh, the law system and also the, the codes and codification from Dutch and it is still used until now. Uh, well, the constitutional structure of Indonesia, we, we are the country of law. This means that the law is placed as the only rule in society, nation, and state. The government institution in Indonesia are based on the constitutional and divided into executive. So we have here like a president and a vice president. We don't have prime minister who lead the ministry but we the ministries in Indonesia directly report to president and vice president and then we have legislative body uh, which is the house of representative and judiciary which is a supreme court and our constitutional court so that is uh, actually the origin of law and constitutional structure of Indonesia So maybe now your speakers from Australia can share a bit about the uh, the originals of law of their country. Sure. So Australia became a federation in 1901. And prior to that, most states had their own constitutional arrangements. So they were all individual. And this was largely modeled on the UK system, which we adopted. And because we were once a, a British colony, 
we have what's called a common law system, which is two sources of law, that being common law and legislation. So common law refers to the way that law is made in this system, that is that judges make law based on precedence, which uh, is a, a term for decided cases. And we develop sets of legal principles which emerge from these judgments. So the precedents form what is kind of a pattern amongst our cases. Then we have the legislation which is passed by our parliament um, within all Australian jurisdictions, that being the Commonwealth, which is the, the federal uh, jurisdiction and each state and territory can also pass uh, its own legislation. Uh, Nita, did you have anything to add? Yes, and, and uh, essentially under our constitutional systems, yeah, you find that the federation or what you, you would refer to as Australia, uh, the government of Australia has jurisdictional issues on things like foreign affairs, defence, border security, uh, and taxes, collection of taxes. Uh, states will have other responsibilities like health, education, uh, infrastructure. So there's a bit of overlap between infrastructure. Uh, they may be able to collect certain taxes, but the majority of taxes are actually collected at the uh, at the at the federal level. Uh, and things like law and order, so criminal justice is administered at a, at a state level, except for those things that are at a federal level, which are things like uh, anti-money laundering or, or foreign corrupt practices and things like that. So, so there's a bit of overlap. We have a third layer of government, which is um, that we have um, uh, local governments. So essentially, these are uh, governments that basically provide uh, sanitation, garbage collection, parks, recreation, uh, and again, they have minimal tax, taxing uh, uh, layers, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, local governments provide those services that you see out on the streets. So for a country of 25 million, we have three layers of, 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 of government. Uh, the jury is out as to whether or not it's actually too many layers of government or whether too, it's too few and whether we could add a few more. Okay, so right off the bat, we can see that there is a difference between the legal system of both countries where Indonesia adopts the civil law system and, the Austra and Australia adopts the common law system, right? And also um, another difference that is worth noting is that, as you mentioned, Australia is a federation, whereas Indonesia is not a federation. Indonesia is a unitary state, and we also do recognize um, some regional governments and governance. Maybe Ms. Risky could share a little bit about that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So yeah, we are Indonesia is not a federation, so we does not differentiate between federal and state laws. So the state of Indonesia shall be unitary state with the form of republic. So Indonesia is often uh, Indonesia is called a Republic of Indonesia, and the Republic of Indonesia is divided into provinces region and the provincial region are divided into two regencies and municipals so we have like this uh, central government and then the regi regional government the uh, central government must uh, the regional government is entitled to determine its own regional policies in carrying out government governance affairs which falls under its scope of authority so the regional policies include establishing regional regulations, head of region regulation, and head of region decrees. And then uh, the governance affairs that falls within the scope of authority of central and regional governments are like uh, mandatory governance affairs, 
related to the basic service, which is education, health, public works, and manpower, land, environment, tourism, agriculture, forestry. So instead of each gov each regions uh, stipulate their own regulation, their regulation must follow the central regulation. So basically, everything is regulated uh, is regulated in the uh, uh, central government. And then the central government will delegate uh, some affairs that need to be further regulated by the uh, regional government. So, but however, there are some governance affairs that are deserved only for the central government, such as foreign politics, defense, security, justice, and national monetary and fiscal, as well as religion. In terms of tax, uh, the central government govern like the type of tax and the uh, percentage of tax, but the uh, and then uh, some taxes must uh, be paid directly to the central government, but the regional government can also uh, uh, receive the payment of tax for a certain type. And then, uh, yeah, the center, essentially the central government govern all the main regulation, main policies, and then the regional government only uh, to further regulate it in the uh, government regulation. Right. Um, Nitish or Alana, do you have anything to add with, with that? Uh, well, uh, our tax structure is pretty, um, Australia is a member of the OECD countries. So, and it's one of the G20 countries. So our tax structures are based on your traditional corporate Western liberal democracy tax structures. So we tax income and we also tax consumption and we tax capital gains. So when there's a disposal of an income earning asset, you can then um, tax that as well, capital gains tax. So those are the three primary sources of tax. At a state level, we also tax uh, uh, things, uh, stamp duty. So stamp duty is basically, it's quite an ancient tax. It originates out of the common law, out of the United Kingdom, but it, it, is, it, is, a, it, is, a, it is a duty or stamp duty on transactions. So when, when conveyances happen. So there's a whole myriad of taxes um, that are applicable both at federal and state levels. And sometimes you may be, may be subject to a tax at federal level or, or, or at a state level. But they do move, they are moving, and Australia has moved quite a significant way into uh, trying to streamline its taxes uh, and, and make sure that businesses and tax imposition on, on, on businesses isn't significant. So, uh, you know, in tax, what you have is what is called a dead weight. Uh, so uh, for every dollar of tax collected, how much money has been expanded by the, by the government to actually collect that tax in Australia is, is, isn't too, 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 too bad. Um, uh, taxes are, uh, uh, you know, again, everybody, all businesses um, have to uh, uh, comply with them. Uh, and the tax administration is undertaken both at a state level and also at a federal level. But our tax system, it can be seen to be, we're not as say efficient as say Singapore or, or say New Zealand would be. But in Australia, it is um, you know, pretty transparent as to what the taxes are uh, and, and when you need to pay them and how you need to pay them. Right. Um, Risky, what, what about in Indonesia? Could you share a little bit about the tax structure here? Okay. 
So uh, since we've been talking about tax, Indonesia uh, actually uh, the structure of state revenues is divided into two categories, like uh, this, the tax debt revenue and also the tax facilities. Uh, I'm sorry, the tax debt revenues. So this tax, the tax debt revenues uh, they are uh, comprised to the income tax. So we we collect uh, income tax for govern, uh, for the corporate bodies and also individuals. For the corporate tax, like we have the tax rate of twenty five percent. Well, uh, for the individual income tax, it ranges from five percent until thirty percent. Well, Indonesia also uh, Indonesia also collect tax worldwide income. But uh, unless that uh, we Indonesia has a specific uh, tax agreement with the with the country. But yeah, actually we collect uh, income tax and also we have like this value added tax for the uh, due on events involving the transfer of taxable goods or the provision of taxable services in the Indonesian custom area. The tax rate is flat, uh, which is 10%. It is maybe increased or decreased to 15% or 5%. And then we have here a luxury, good, luxury goods sales tax. Uh, this is a depending, it is range from 10% until 125%, like for the sport car, the luxury sport car, it can reach like a 10% tax, the luxury tax. And then we have here a land and building tax. It is separated from VAT and income tax. When you are doing like a sell and purchase of land, it will be subject to the land and building tax. This is charged, uh, well, this is charged annually. So it depends on the value of the land and building itself. Like we have some calculation on, the, on that specific subject. And also we have a non-tax state revenue, like maybe uh, I need to say you collect stamp duty. We also uh, collect stamp duty for the documents that been signed uh, between the parties or the, the like uh, for sector or for the POA, which is uh, it's uh, quite cheap, like uh, 10, uh, 6,000 rupiah, but uh, it increased, I think within this year it will be a 10, 10,000 rupiah. And then we have uh, customs and we also have a duty on acquisition of land and building rights. Okay, so we have a land and building tax. It, it's, it is to be paid annually. And then we have a duty on acquisition of land and building rights, which is the duty that uh, imposed when you buy a property. I think that's uh, the tax structure in Indonesia. Okay, thank you so much, Rizky. And Alana, I see that you were surprised to see about, to hear about the luxury goods sales tax in Indonesia, maybe because of the high rates of the luxury goods sales tax. Um, do you recognize th those sort of tax in, in, in Australia? No, we don't, unless Nidij has some other information. I've never heard of a, a luxury sales tax in Australia before. We, 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 we have what's called a luxury car tax. 
and, and essentially um, uh, basically taxes on goods and services is our GST. So your VAT equivalent is, is, is our goods and services tax, which is a consumption tax. Um, we do have a luxury car tax. It was really uh, brought in. It was quite an archaic tax. It was brought in at a time when Australia used to manufacture cars over here, assemble motor vehicles. And that was essentially to protect the domestic industry. Australia doesn't produce any more vehicles now. Um, uh, we import all of our vehicles principally from Thailand, from Europe, from the United States, from Japan uh, and China. Um, uh, so I think that's, that's a tax that they've been talking about to, to, to get rid of. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, as governments like, they like to impose taxes. They don't like to give away. They don't like to. <laughs> they don't like to do away taxes just in case it you know it affects their monetary flow. Uh, but but in terms of how taxes work and and you know it goes back to um, as Alana and I were were alluding that uh, essentially Australia is quite an open economy. It is predominantly quite an open economy. Uh, we're a trading nation. We're open to foreign capital. We're for and and foreign goods and services. Uh, we do have uh, some foreign re uh, investment rules. And so in essence, you've got to talk about the, the, the two parts of it. The first part is essentially what would happen ordinarily when we weren't in this COVID situation. And then the second conversation is, well, what's currently happening in the COVID situation? So, you know, in terms of our rules-based systems, well, Australia has been one of the founding members of the WTO. Uh, we have, uh, we're a member of various multilateral uh, trade and investment uh, um, uh, um, agreements. And we also have the bilateral trade agreements. So basically as we do with uh, Malaysia, uh, we also we also have um, uh, protection of investments or what we call uh, uh, you know investment agreements with various countries so like Hong Kong and, and places like this so where government policy uh, changes on the ground here and it affects our foreign investors investment in Australia they have the ability to actually uh, under the investor state dispute mechanisms in, in these various agreements to take Australia to an international arbitration to, to, to review that. So in terms of the rules-based system, Australia is, 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 it is something that Australian governments profess that we uh, want to belong to. And as a trading nation, uh, we look to countries where uh, places protect investment and, 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 and there's a mechanism whereby disputes can be resolved within the rule of law. So uh, Australia has that system over here. And I think that's what a lot of Australian businesses that are looking to, uh, especially into Asia, are looking for that as well. Um, uh, just briefly on the whole foreign investment rules. Look, we've got uh, normally most investments above, uh, below a certain threshold. And I think the thresholds normally were about $1.21 billion of investment into sensitive land areas or sensitive business activities were exempt. You didn't have to get any approvals. You could just turn up and instruct your professional advisors, set up the companies and get on with it. Uh, since then, uh, since COVID, that, that threshold number has now come down. The monetary level number has come down to zero. So pretty much any foreign investment that's coming into Australia at the moment is being vetted by our foreign investment review board, which is connected with our federal tax, uh, uh, with our federal tax authority. And uh, the process is pretty, pretty straightforward. But one of the key things they look for is source of funds. So if you've got companies that are actually coming to do an acquisition in Australia, uh, one of the things that they really look for is source of funds. And we've looked through that in terms of where is, what is the definition of source of funds. And you have to look at it from various different regimes within Australia to come up with quite a concise definition of what the source of funds are. 
So uh, for all those Indonesian businesses out there that are looking to do business in Australia, uh, what we recommend is that you do a bit of prep work uh, in ensuring that you talk to advisors like Budhijaya International Lawyers to, to really start getting together that information before you start negotiations with a counterparty in Australia. What you don't want to do is to enter into agreements, binding contractual obligations, and then find that you may be precluded under the rules that are operating at the moment, or that you then are unable to settle on a transaction because of the time it takes to actually get the regulatory approvals because you don't have your paperwork you know, in order. So a bit of uh, forward uh, thinking and preparation is, is advantageous. Thank you, Natish, for telling us a bit about the considerations for investing in Australia. And what about in Indonesia, Rizky? Do you have anything about the key considerations before entering into the investment market in Indonesia? Okay. Okay. So, uh, well, before maybe a Australian investor want to invest in Indonesia, we always uh, advise them like uh, you have to know that in Indonesia, foreign investor could only in the form of a limited liability company. And then you have to form some kind of joint venture with Indonesian company. If the that specific line of business or sector is limited to foreign investor. So this, we, we have here like a list of negative investment, which is at least down like what uh, business sector that are close for investment, for foreign investment, and then uh, which, which business is part, partially open for foreign investment. Well, but uh, so that Netich mentioned that we have like agreements in Indonesia and Australia. Well, uh, we, we understand that Indonesia and Australia has concluded trade agreement recently. And then it gives like a relaxation for the in, in relation to the trade and service and investment. Like for example, uh, for the mining and related services, Australia ownership could be up to 67% with no requirement to divest. And under normal circumstances, uh, the other country must have must have to divest the their uh, percentage of ownership up until 49%. So Australia could keep uh, until 67%. And then for the hospital, Australia ownership could up to 70, uh, 67% with no geographic limitation. Well, for the foreign investment, like the hospital must be in certain geographic area uh, so that it can allow that uh, percentage. And then uh, Australian suppliers of certain technical and vocational education and training may provide services through majority Australian owned business in Indonesia. Like it's known in Indonesia as work training. So that's for the investment facility for the Australia. And then uh, speaking of facility, like we also have tax facility because Indonesia is focused on opening uh, as much as a job uh, for its people. So uh, in the industry, pioneer industry could, uh, could uh, enjoy like a benefit of tax deduction for up to 15%, sorry, for up to 50% 
if it employs like many Indonesian people as its workers because we we are like the fourth uh, we, we are we we have a uh, so many population here and the workforce is very high so that the government wants to create uh, as many as the uh, job openings for its people. And then uh, back to the what you have uh, what you you have seen before you invest in Indonesia. Aside from the negative list, uh, you if if your business is subject to a foreign investment limitation, you have to search for a business partner in Indonesia, and then you should uh, uh, you have to be careful on uh, selecting the terms and how the profit will be divided, uh, and then. Uh, Aside that, I think choosing the great partners will be very helpful because Indonesia requires at least two shareholders for a, to establish a limited liability company. And I think for the uh, Indonesian company uh, who wants to uh, invest in Australia, uh, aside from what you have described, I mean, doing Australia have uh, like some kind of negative list investment, like maybe for some countries or for certain of business, you have restriction. Well, uh, uh, the, the, the first thing is our corporation now is a single shareholder company. So you can actually have one person or sole director, sole shareholder company, which is the distinction from, from uh, which means that you don't have to appoint a nominee shareholder uh, so a wholly owned, you know, or one shareholder, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, we do have uh, what we call, I think, and they're coming up with the new definitions very shortly uh, as to what is sort of sensitive assets. So uh, agricultural land, you know, Australia is a very, very large land mass uh, and you have a lot of uh, agricultural land. So when an agricultural and, and a lot of those are commercial farms and when you when there's a foreign investor that's coming into you know acquire land then um the, the the size of the land will predicate whether or not foreign investment approval is required so you know you're talking about uh farms the size of belgium <laughs> in terms of geographical area in parts of australia you know sort of uh, larger than singapore kind of kind of you know kind of kind of farms uh, you know, so so when you get into that kind of stuff, then you do. And obviously some other sensitive assets in, th in terms of national interest. So uh, critical infrastructure, uh, electricity generation or distribution, um, uh, water, uh, th those types of very critical infrastructure that uh, any sovereign nation would be looking at very carefully. But if you were to look at, you know, distribution, manufacturing, any of those types of industries, there aren't any restrictions ordinarily. Alana? Yeah, I think just going off Australia being in an open economy and encouraging foreign investment, um, we've got what we call a foreign investment review board, commonly known as FERB. And last week, the Australian federal government released our 2020-2021 budget and they've dedicated um, 80, around $87 million over the next four years to implement new ICT platforms to make 
the process of foreign investment applications much more efficient. And they're also looking to simplify the fee um, allocation and adjust fees from the 1st of January 2021. So I think this is the Australian government's indication that we really uh, are looking to open um, the country even more to foreign investment. And I think the one area where there's a bit of growing concern in Australia about foreign ownership is residential uh, properties. So where you are competing if you're a foreign investor. And, you know, remember Australia's property market, much like most developed countries around the world, the property markets have been increasing. You know, the capital growth has been increasing at quite a rapid rate. Uh, So I think in terms of the restrictions there is, that uh, established dwellings, so anything, you know, that apartments, condominiums or houses that are already established. So where you're buying in the secondary market, there seems to be restrictions on foreigners owning those. You've got to jump through hurdles. But where foreign investors are coming in to actually uh, say off the plan developments for apartments or condos. So, you know, where the purpose is to actually add to the quality or the quantity of the housing stock, then there are there aren't restrictions on foreigners. So when you know when you when you look at those beautiful photographs of uh, Sydney beaches or Gold Coast beaches, and you see those condominiums or apartments that are overlooking you know uh, our nice you know blue waters, uh, yeah, some foreigners like to because it's 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 a good investment. So where you are going in, where the developer is going to be building new stock, then there aren't too many restrictions. And you know we're a favorite destination, you know, from Singapore. Hong Kong, Malaysia, China, Japan, a lot of individuals, mum and dad investors out of those countries like to invest in, uh, in, in, in residential property in, 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 in any of the East Coast cities. All right. So I see that um, Australia have very um, few restrictions in regards to foreign investment, right? Whereas I think in Indonesia, there's a bit more restrictions into to some areas for foreign investment. And also, um, I thought that it was interesting that you mentioned that in Australia, you were able to invest with only one shareholder, right? Um, and interestingly enough, um, recently Indonesia has released um, enacted the omnibus law on job creation. And we also um, provided some con- some instances where a company can have only one shareholder when, when normally we require two shareholders. So maybe Risky could um, share a little bit about the enactment of omnibus law in Indonesia. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Nathania. So, well, it is true that Indonesia would like to go toward like opening a limited liability company to be founded by one shareholder, but I think it's it's still only reserved to a small and micro enterprise, not a big company. Like a big company uh, for like a large large scale company must still have to be founded by two shareholders. And uh, speaking about this omnibus law, well, it is quite controversial. Maybe you already seen on the news that many people protest about this enactment of the omnibus law. But I think the goal to enact this a specific law is to like uh, to provide a simply simplification to the licensing and to uh, reduce the burden of the company in terms of employment. 
So uh, this omnibus law is recently uh, being ratified by the House of Legis Legislative. It is actually aimed to increase job creation by stipulating strategies discretion that will expand employment in Indonesia. One of the strategies is to increase the investment ecosystem and business activity in Indonesia. So uh, it is, it, this is the first time Indonesia enact like this kind of law, which is the omnibus law, which amend like more than, I think more than 70 regulations, 70 laws, which is to aim like uh, to cut some procedures in applying license, like for example, in, in, in the, uh, in the forestry and the fishery previously like the company must apply for this like maybe seven licenses seven uh permits and then it will it, it, it is reduced for up to five or four and then uh the omnibus law also uh uh stipulate that oh the, the government will try to reduce the number of closed business for foreign investment and also to open like more business to foreign investment like maybe previously it's limited to 70% and now it will be open. But we have not seen that implementing regulation because it's only said that it will open more, but the what business that is that will be closed it will be regulated in the uh, government regulation and then um and also beside uh the aim to opening the investment uh the this omnibus law is to uh, wants to wants to protect the small uh, and micro business in indonesia so it, it is uh, like uh, provide more uh, flexibility to the small and micro business in Indonesia. And also it is also uh, add like facilities to the investment, uh, for investment that would like to invest in Indonesia. And then, uh, and also the, the profession that is being protested by many people in Indonesia is in regard to the employment because previously, like uh, the many foreign investment are very, uh, it is some profession in the in our employment law is very burdensome to the uh, company because of the number of severance payment and also the the obligation to employ the, the employment in the permanent status, like etc. And it is being uh, being uh, relaxed being relaxed like uh, this omnibus law uh, actually provide more relaxation to the business and also to support business by granting more investment facilities but i think uh, the the implementing regulation we have to see the implementing regulation which will be enacted in the next three months that and after the enactment of government regulation we can see more clearly what is the type of investment facility what is the uh, the the clear uh, steps that need to be taken. What is the relaxation uh, for this investment? Yeah, I think that's about the omnibus law. Yeah, I think the omnibus the enactment of omnibus law is one of the attempts of the government for conducting ease of doing business in Indonesia, right? 
And um, what about in Australia? Did the government recently establish or enact certain policies or regulations for ease of doing business in Australia? Um, there's a continuous um, uh, aim, both at the federal level and state governments, to, and, and colloquially in Australia, it's called uh, reduction of red tape. So our, our law allows statutes or legislation which is passed by parliament uh, under the common law system, it allows regulatory powers. So that's where the executive branch of our governments, ministers and government departments are able to then make regulations. So for efficiency, you can make regulations for, you know, changing street signs and, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, and speed limits and things like that. You don't want to be going back to parliament to pass amendments. So our system only already allows for regulatory power. But, you know, that said, uh, uh, you can end up with too many regulations. So there's a continuous process of actually purging and, and repealing uh, older legislation and, and regulations. So uh, we do that. So an example is, you know, again, a contrast to, to Indonesia, uh, and a lot of help me out here, it is that uh, our companies are allowed to have just the sole director, provided at least one director resides in Australia. So you could quite easily have a one shareholder, a, a subsidiary company, say out of Singapore or Indonesia, that owns, wholly owns all the shares in an Australian company, and you really just have to have one resident Australian director. So there are, there are many ways in which our federal and our state governments work to, to try and alleviate red tape. We call it red tape in Australia, and there is. Yeah, I think the selection of who the resident director is as well is also, is also really important. We've seen in other jurisdictions where an employee of the company is chosen to be the resident director and that employee um, ceases their employment with that business, uh, things can become quite interesting. So putting some thought into who the local director will be or the resident director will be is uh, really important for the long-term um, goals of the business. And I think the other thing is in Australia, as, as Risky uh, mentioned, uh, employment law um, you know, and, and laws that regulations that apply to you know, the businesses uh, in a particular environment that you're operating in or whatever regulatory framework you're operating in uh, is again, uh, there's always a move to digitize uh, the, the process. So, so Alana and I advise a lot of clients who are in that pharmaceutical space uh, and veterinary medicines, cosmetics. So not only do you have to worry about the specific regulatory environment uh, that you need to you know, have a factory in which you can manufacture therapeutics, but you also have to worry about consumer law protections as well. So Alana will often advise on, on, on consumer obligations. You know, what happens if, you, if there's a product recall or you know, if a customer is, is, is dissatisfied with the quality of the product because the product has broken down. So again, Alana, uh, uh, the, the consumer law protections that we have over here tries to move away from actually being overly prescriptive to actually, you know, creating the framework within which uh, businesses and consumers have to operate. Yeah, that's right. Something to be, um, foreign investors should definitely be aware of in Australia because it is we have many bodies that um, follow it quite closely as well, and it is a federal uh, power um, that is not looked over by the states and is consistent among all. There's an increasing um, harmonisation where previously, so our corporations law until 2001 
was regulated uh, at a state level. Uh, and so what we've done is uh, the state ceded the power to the Commonwealth. So all of our companies now are regulated at a federal level. Uh, and we've had a, a, a quite a substantive change um, in, in what's called personal property securities, uh, which is following on from the United States and also in Canada. So all of our, uh, you know, your ability to take fixed and floating charges and, you know, uh, uh, lenders taking security over uh, uh, from borrowers, that has been well, and, and it's moved away from having multiple uh, registries that, and then some which were actually physical to now having it all online. So uh, there is this big push to harmonize from states up to the federal up to the federal level, and then also digitizing. Right, um, Risky. Do you have anything to add to that um, about the digitalization of the licensings, maybe in Indonesia? Okay, so about the digitalizing, well, uh, since 2018, I think Indonesia also tried to uh, convert the traditional way of applying license. Like previously, we have to submit the documents and we have to come for the uh, presentation. We presented how our business will, uh, will go, will operate to the official. We rather now... Uh, uh, doing everything online like for example like we have this online single submission system it is it was established in 2018 but now it, it's being uh, completed like the it is being upgraded so now every business uh, whether it is small micro or large enterprise could apply the license online to this specific uh, license uh, uh, system. It's called online system, single submission is OSS. It's actually supervised or operated by the our uh, investment coordination board, whereby for uh, you, at first, after you establish a business, like for example, you go to the notary, you want to make a, a, a article of association deed of establishment and then your company being ratified by the ministry and then you go to the, and then you open an account in the OSS and you register your company there. And also you put like uh, one, uh, how much, how many director, commissioner and how many shareholders there. Then you have to input like the capital, your uh, how much your capital is. And then, uh, okay, for the foreign investor, uh, foreign investment company, you have to have like uh, this investment value. Investment value is like uh, how, how much that you will invest in Indonesia. For example, like foreign investor, foreign investment company must have minimum uh, more than 10 billion rupiah to invest in Indonesia. And then, uh, you have to uh, break down that investment value to uh, like uh, in what way that you will spend this investment value. Like for example, it's for the working capital, and then maybe it's for to buy, it's for buying assets in Indonesia. And then uh, after that, you have to also uh, calculate the expected income for a company. And then for the foreign investment company, you also have to have 
minimum uh, issued and paid up capital of 2.5 billion rupiah. So that's the requirement that you have to input in the uh, in the OSS system, and then this system will will issue like a business identification number and also the licensing. So it is only digitalized. It is also digitalized, and the a license will issue online. So you 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 don't have to submit any documents when you apply a license. And then when you fulfill the commitment for the uh, license, then maybe you are required to submit one or two documents to the relevant ministry. But I think we also uh, wish to simplify and digitalize all the licensing. Right. Thank you, Risky. So I guess um, we have been having a good discussion and I think that because our time is almost running out, we could sum up a bit of the discussion we had today. Um, do, does anybody have some last thoughts or questions to each other? Um, well, definitely from, from an Australian perspective, um, you know, we've got the infrastructure now between Australia and Indonesia under the free trade agreement. Both countries have been working to that uh, and there's a commitment. Uh, you know, there are certain things that uh, both sides, companies going into Indonesia or into Australia, have to think about. Preparation is key, uh, getting in with your advisors beforehand so that you're able to contextualize uh, what may work in Australia would be different in Indonesia and vice versa. Um, so I think, yeah, what I could recommend is there will be some differences, but I think with the, with the good preparation and adequate advice, right at the offset, you will be able to actually overcome those hurdles pretty quickly and you can get on with doing business, uh, earning profits and, uh, and fostering the economic relationship between the two countries. Okay, so I think, yeah, similar with Anitich, the important thing is for the, to, to prepare, to do the, the preparation and to, to be well informed about the differences and the procedures for establishing, uh, establishing business in each country, like maybe for investor in Indonesia who wish to establish business in Australia, you have to come uh, with the good preparation and to come up with that good preparation, you have to contact your trusted advisor to get like the advisory on how, uh, on whether your business will be successful there and what hurdles that you must uh, come uh, you must solve, and then that's why choosing the uh, the the best advisor is very important before conducting business. Yeah, Alana, do you have anything to add? We close this podcast. Uh, I think this is an exciting time to be looking into investing in Australia. We've got a lot of changes happening to our foreign investment rules. Um, and each state is very varied in the ways you can invest um, and trade with Australia. Um, and yeah, we're just looking forward to be able to advise, provide that advice to, uh, to any businesses looking to come to Australia. Okay, thank you so much. And on that note, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you, Risky, and thank you to our special guest, um, Nitich and Alana, for being here with us today and for this enlightening discussion. As a closing sentence, I believe I'm speaking on behalf of everyone when I say this, that 
we hope that moving forward, we sincerely hope that Indonesia and Australia can be not just close neighbors, but also great friends. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, for this episode on Budijaya on Air. If you have any questions, you may contact us at cr at budijaya.law. Stay tuned for the upcoming episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Budijaya on Air. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the follow button and make sure you subscribe to our website www.budijaya.law for more content like this.